0: Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Wednesday, February 24th. Inflation fears are up, COVID hospitalizations are down, and we're focused on the newest advocate for economic stimulus. We're just over six weeks into the Biden administration, and two major storylines have emerged. First, the pandemic is subsiding, at least a little. Part of that's just thanks to the calendar, as the post-Thanksgiving and Christmas holiday surges subsided. A bigger part is that over 44 million Americans have already gotten their first vaccine jab, including many senior citizens who are most at risk for death. Second, the country still needs economic stimulus. For many everyday Americans, for small businesses, for renters, for both livelihoods and recovery. But even though the White House and Congress have been negotiating stimulus since Inauguration Day, it remains in limbo. So now top business leaders are stepping into the breach, trying to speed things along. Earlier today, for example, a group of more than 150 CEOs wrote a public letter to Congress telling it, We need stimulus and we need it now. And then there's Wall Street giant JP Morgan, which just released its first ever set of economic policy recommendations. Its think tank, called the JP Morgan Chase Institute, historically has analyzed anonymized Chase credit card data. But then let policymakers come to their own policy conclusions. Now, though, the Institute and its newly founded policy center are going a step further, leveraging that data to propose everything from raising the minimum wage to adding benefits for working parents to extending eviction moratoriums. So we wanted to talk to Heather Higginbottom, a former Obama administration official and current president of the JP Morgan Chase Policy Center, about why they're getting into the policy recommendation game and what they hope to accomplish. So, Heather, I guess let's actually start with the policy center part. The J.P. Morgan Institute for a while has kind of used anonymized credit card and bank data to understand trends in consumer spending, etc. This, though, in this report you're releasing today is a move into policy recommendations. Why?
1: Well, that's right. We are bringing all of the assets across our firm uh, to address some of the common issues facing this country as you're probably familiar, we announced recently a $30 billion commitment to address racial equity. We do uh, really cutting edge research at the Institute. But to really make change at scale, we need to link that research to some of the policy recommendations and considerations that can inform some of the discussions that are happening on Capitol Hill or in state houses. And that's really what we're trying to do. We have a firm belief that uh, we need to step up and use the assets we have to help address some of these systemic issues, particularly now with COVID and its impacts. Uh, This research and these recommendations are very timely in our estimation.
0: And just before we get into some of those recommendations, how should listeners understand the relationship between what you're doing in your group and JPMorgan Chase, the bank and investment bank?
1: That's a great question. Uh, the, The JPMorgan Chase Policy Center and the Institute are really focused on what insights and recommendations we can provide that can drive for a more inclusive economy. So we're not really talking about the day-to-day business of the firm and what we do. We're talking about how we can ensure if we're taking COVID, for example, that we are addressing the structural inequities that exist in the economy and ways and solutions um, to bridge some of those divides. So we are looking through a broader lens. We have a strong view that now more than ever, business has a responsibility to step forward and address some of these uh, economic divisions that are in our country and, and globally as well.
0: From reading through this report, directionally speaking, uh, I I get a a sense of where it is. It suggests that there needs to be more money spent on certain things. It it seems to advocate for potentially uh, kind of more rent forgiveness or at least delay or at least uh, moratoriums on evictions, uh, increases to the minimum wage, etc. It does seem to fall short in a bunch of places of real specific you know numbers. Minimum wage, for example, suggests that it has not obviously kept up with inflation or even close, but doesn't say $15 or $12 or anything else on the federal side. Is that an intentional decision and why?
1: Well, what we're really doing here is taking our original research and bringing it to bear against a set of policy questions. There's gonna be a debate in Congress. We're trying to use our data and analysis to inform some of those conversations. Minimum wage is really important. Wages and benefits are really important if we're talking about building a much more inclusive economy but it's only one piece of the puzzle. We need to be reforming and modernizing the unemployment insurance system. We need to take uh, a step back and say, look, our labor markets are changing. We have a gig economy. What are we doing about that? What are we doing for um, paid sick leave, paid leave, family leave? There's a whole set of benefits here, and and it's important. Minimum wage is important, and we, we support increasing the minimum wage but it's really about the whole set of interventions, both short and longer term, that are necessary to ensure that more people have the opportunity to prosper in this economy.
0: All right. So let me ask you about both short and longer term. Obviously, things that there's levels of priority, and I'm sure Congress would say they can walk and chew gum at the same time. But what is your most uh, kind of called the top priority from a short term and long term perspective?
1: Well, I think. Congress has taken several steps forward that we've been able to look at data and research and provide some insight into. So we believe that the continued unemployment insurance benefits are important, that pandemic assistance program that goes to those gig workers, that the supplement um, that accompanies unemployment insurance is important, because we've seen that it's played a really important role in maintaining household spending throughout this pandemic, and that the elevated unemployment insurance levels, for example, have not discouraged jobless workers from returning to work. So we're urging uh, policymakers to consider how we continue to extend that kind of assistance. Uh, With rental assistance, for example, Congress just uh, enacted some rental assistance in the last package. It's very important. Our research found that even after you account for those stimulus payments, the unemployment insurance, that renters experienced a greater than 10 percent drop in income, suggesting that they are really struggling. And we see that in different places. So it's elements like that in the short term that we want to continue to see action on and and really paying close attention to. But what the COVID pandemic made very clear is that we've had a a really frayed economic security net, social safety net in this country. We've seen so many families uh, really living on the edge. Um, You know, some of our research has shown that you need uh, roughly six weeks of your take-home income to sustain a drop in income or an expenditure spike. And far less than half of American families before the pandemic had that. So that points to a series of policy solutions that that we hope will be considered after we get over the very short-term aspects of this to include things like uh, higher wages and benefits, but also job skills and training that are really going to ensure more people are able to earn more money over time.
0: Heather, you know, Chase Bank has a reputation for being uh, primarily, or at least, um, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, <laughs> it, it is more coastal than middle, I guess you could say, in terms of where branches are, where customers are. How confident are you that the data you have is representative nationally?
1: Well, I think you can learn a lot from our data about what is happening in real time, and that's really important. Uh, and I think it also provides insights into what's happening right now. But we are seeing that reflected in other data sources or from other places. We are contributing to that conversation with what we what we can see and touch So it does feel very aligned, but I think we have a unique perspective and ability to bring some of that forward. I also think it's really important that we are using the tools we have at our disposal to perform this research, to engage in these policy conversations, because we think business plays a really important role. So we don't think it should be only our voice, but it is an important voice to bring forward and to work with others to really make sure as we move forward, we're building a much more inclusive economy than we had even before the pandemic.
0: I'm curious when it comes to the underlying data, this kind of anonymized credit card information, has the White House or anyone in Congress asked to access it? And if they asked, would you say yes?
1: Well, we certainly don't just offer up our uh, our data, um, but we share our reports and our analysis. Why not share
0: the data confidentially with, say, the White House?
1: We, we share all of the data that we publicize, but we also take great responsibility to take care of our anonymized and aggregated data. So we certainly want, wouldn't want to turn over a data set. But all of the research that we do and prepare, we disseminate, we do briefings, we answer questions, we engage with other researchers. We're not hiding anything here, but we also have to maintain um, uh, you know, our controls over the data. Our objective is to perform this research and disseminate it as widely as we can, and to ensure that where there are questions around it, we can answer them.
0: You worked in the Obama White House. I, I ask you this. The recommendations do seem to largely uh, mirror to a certain extent, again, not specific policies, but kind of directionally, uh, the Biden administration's priorities, or at least their stated priorities. Any concern that, quote, that tying the JP Morgan name to some of these could alienate progressives?
1: Well, look, this is a moment that employees and people all across the country are looking for business to step up and address these really significant divisions that we have from an economic perspective that we've seen um, play out that have been really laid bare during the pandemic. We are transparently coming into this conversation with what our research and data driven analysis brings to the fore. It's not a partisan agenda. It's one that really is a result of of what we're seeing and hearing. We don't want to alienate anyone. We want to talk with everyone. And we're about finding solutions. It would be my hope. Uh, that we could have conversations on those terms, but certainly there 's always skeptics to engage with, and that 's okay what 's important is that we have some common outcomes and, and we 've got to come to a place where we can build an economy that works for more people and, and This is what our research and our unique perspective is helping to build on
0: does this research you know most of the stuff you 're talking about here is obviously our, our fiscal policy issues recommendations. Is it, from your perspective, divorced right now from monetary policy? In other words, if the Fed changed, uh, it, it's kind of, you know, zero interest rates forever policy, would that in some way impact what you guys have in this report? Or do you think that they are kind of operating on separate lanes right now?
1: Well, I would say that, you know, what what we're looking at, the questions we're looking at right now um are really related to policies that have been acted and trends that we're seeing and certainly some of that could influence what we we're examining and what the impact is. But that's not our principal objective. Our objective is to see how people are faring, how we can help them through this crisis and how we can ensure um that we're really we're strengthening the financial security and resiliency of American households and small businesses, which you know, we know are really, really strained right now.
0: Heather Higginbottom, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome back. What we're watching today is Johnson & Johnson after the Food and Drug Administration staff endorsed the drug makers' one-shot coronavirus vaccine as safe and effective. Why it matters is that America could have a third COVID-19 vaccine within just a matter of days. 3 things to know. First, an FDA advisory panel will meet Friday to review the staff research and then vote on J&J's application for an emergency use authorization. It's the same process we saw late last year with the vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. Two, the biggest benefit of J&J's vaccine is ease of distribution, both because of the single dose and because it needn't be stored at ultra-low temperatures. Now, the J&J vaccine doesn't seem to prevent as many mild infections as the other vaccines do but it's highly effective at preventing death and serious illness. Three, assuming the J&J vaccine is authorized soon, only between two to four million doses are expected to be immediately available for shipping. The U.S. government has, though, struck an agreement with J&J to receive a total of 100 million doses by the end of June. It's also worth noting that over half of the J&J doses sold so far will go to developing nations. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great National Tortilla Chip Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.